Welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, Josh Cincinnati and I chat with Matt Green, a cryptographer and professor at Johns Hopkins University. In this far-reaching conversation, we cover his early ZK blockchain research, the founding of Zcash, the growth in the ZK space, and how the space is ready for tangible, real-world use cases. We also talk about navigating the desire for anonymity and the existing regulatory bodies. We talk about his new project, Sealance, and then dive into his take on the Tornado Cash sanctions and what this means for development in the ZK space. Now, before we start in, I want to announce and invite you to join us for the upcoming ZK Hack 3, a virtual multi-week event starting on November 22nd. It's all online, so you can join from wherever you are. Now, ZK Hack is a very special event. It's a combination of a multi-week series of workshops from the best teams in ZK, as well as a puzzle hacking competition happening at the same time. So on the workshop front, we have teams like Aztec, Risk Zero, Alio, Anoma, Scroll, Mina, and more presenting. These workshops are designed to onboard and show developers how they can start working with ZK DSLs, platforms, tools, and the tech. Each workshop is different, so have a look at our schedule and sign up for the events that are most interesting for you. Now, while the workshops are designed for all levels of learning, including beginner and intermediate, we also at the same time have something for the experts or the folks who really want to challenge themselves, and that is the ZK Puzzles. Every week, we release one of these puzzles. That is a broken ZK system or protocol. If you find the bug, submit an answer as quickly as you can, you might rank on our leaderboard. We will have three of these for this edition, and the top-ranking hackers will get prizes, spotlights, and lots and lots of cred within our community. And even if you're not an expert, you might want to give it a shot. So keep your eye on Twitter and our Discord, and I'm going to add links to our first kickoff event in the show notes. So I hope to see you there. Now, Tanya will share a little bit about this week's sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by Ave. Ave Grants is a community-led grants program focused on growing a thriving ecosystem of contributors within Ave by funding ideas, projects, and events that benefit the protocol and the surrounding ecosystem. Ave's latest deployment, V3, was launched on six networks and introduces new features like isolation mode, efficiency mode, and portals. A decentralized collateral-backed stablecoin native to Aave called GHO has also been announced. Look out for more details on the testnet and release coming soon. You can explore the protocol at Aave.com. And if you're building in the ecosystem, apply for a grant through AveGrants.org. That's AveGrants.org. So thanks again, Aave. And now, here's our episode. Today, Josh Cincinnati and I are here with Matt Green, a cryptographer and professor at Johns Hopkins University. He works in the fields of wireless, payment, and content protection with a strong focus on privacy. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks for having me. Um, So my hope with this episode is that we get to know a little bit more about your work and check in with you about like the state of ZK. It's changed a lot over the last few years and the rate of change is accelerating. There's always been concerns about the regulatory response to this technology. And the summer we actually saw, you know, it happening with the tornado cash sanctions by OFAC. So yeah, it's a great time to speak to you and I'm really excited to dive into it. But before we do that, Josh, you're going to be co-hosting with me. I know. You've been on the show a number of times, but I feel like we do need to hear a little bit of an update from you. Yeah, because it's, it's been a minute. 
yeah. uh, since I've been last on. Wait, was the last time you were on actually like New Year's? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's been... And 2022 is almost over, which doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Well, I'm uh, very glad that you're back on. And yeah, do tell us, like, what have you been up to? What's new? Yeah. The biggest news for me is that I am am back full time in the cryptocurrency industry. Uh, I've started another organization called uh, Radiant Commons, which is focused actually on uh, a project whose founder you had uh, on uh, an episode a little while back. Project is Penumbra and uh, the founder is Henry DeValence. Uh, he and I actually met through our work in Zcash. And, and so I'm really excited about it. It's uh, another opportunity to contribute to the privacy space and cryptocurrency, which, as as Matt knows, uh, is definitely something that is near and dear to my heart uh, as well as his. Uh, so, yeah, I'm really I'm really excited about that. That's that's a big passion and what what draws me to this space. But, you know, my my side hobby of shitposting got a bit of a boost uh, because Ooh. I finally have a. A personal newsletter. Uh, this is just through RSS and my own website that I'm hosting. But I do I do a little bit of uh, narrating some fun articles that I write. Actually, the last thing I did was a little different. I interviewed my dad and tried to explain cryptocurrency <laughs> and penumbra to him, and nice. I failed. Oh, uh, but it was it was a fun time. So. Is Josh's dumb voice ever coming back? That's sort of, I, I th- think that's the spiritual successor to Josh's okay. dumb voice. Cool. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it, you know, Josh's dumb voice, the extended cut. Fantastic. Josh, thanks so much for that. And congrats. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. It's great to be back. And everyone should be looking out for Radiant Commons. Radiant Commons. Yeah. And then my, you know, the, my little newsletter thing is called Bit Banter. Nice. Cool. So Matt, I am so excited that you're actually on the show. I don't know if you know this. I've tried to get you on the show through like a number of different channels and this is the first time that it worked. So (laughs) I'm really excited to hear about all of your work. And I'm excited too, because, you know, Matt and I used to talk much more frequently when I was at the, you know, Zcash Foundation. And it's really been a minute since I've had an opportunity to hear what he's been up to. So it's really cool too. Yeah, every every few months I've been like, hey, maybe Josh is going to come back in and do something and here's this thing you could do. And I talked to him and he's like, not quite yet, not quite yet. So I'm glad that you're back, back in the world. Oh, nice. Thanks, thanks. So Matt, I want to kind of start, since it's the first time we're meeting, I want to hear a little bit about what got you first excited about cryptography. Yeah, I um, have a weird background. I actually started out uh, way back in college. I actually got a music degree in electronic music. And, uh, you know, like I I did, I wanted to do anything but be a computer scientist. And like electronic music is, you know, electronic music is still computer science. So like, it's it's not that far away, but I desperately wanted to be a composer. And, uh, you know, it turned out that I wasn't talented. So what I learned is that, you know, I I, I kind of, computers drew me, no, it's okay. Uh, Computers drew drew me back in. And uh, I actually ended up for you know a few years working on this kind of perfect job at AT&T Labs where I was working on basically selling music over the internet. And the part of selling the music over the internet that got me really excited was this whole part where the music had to be encrypted and we had to make it so that you know you could keep people from buying the same song twice. Which you know when you look DRM. back, DRM. I remember. I know. <laughs> I, little little fun fact, Matt. I actually did a minor in music technology. That was like my the only technology actually I ever studied. I mean, I think it might be around the same era. Are you talking like early two thousands? Early two thousands. Yep. Yeah. Nice. DRM te- technology. I remember this. It was the cool. I mean, like, okay, DRM itself is awful, and you know, I've mm-hmm. I've dealt with yeah. it for years, and it's like a dead area. It's stupid, but <laughs> it was 
the the technology itself, I, I just kind of fell in love with it. And it wasn't mm-hmm. so much the DRM tech. It was the fact that you could do all these amazing things with cryptography that would allow you to do all kinds of stuff. Like, for example, transact online in ways that didn't require you to trust people or didn't require you to tell people what you were doing and who you were doing it with. And I thought that was amazing. And it just kind of like addicted me. And from that moment on, I knew that was what I wanted to do for kind of the rest of my life. And uh, I, I kind of eventually had the chance to go back to grad school and study that. And the rest is uh, a very, very long story, but that's pretty much pretty much <laughs> the end of the, the simple part. So you're a professor at Johns Hopkins. Are you a professor of cryptography now? I am. I'm a, well, I'm a professor of computer science. I work in the Information Security Institute and I work on applied cryptography. And, you know, I like to say I work on applied cryptography and computer security because I think that, you know, cryptography is a field of making computers do things securely. It's not just mm. theory. And so I really, really, I don't like to give up that part of it, but, you know, mm-hmm. that, that is what I do. Yes. From that time of studying, have you always stayed in academia or have you kind of like ventured in and out? No, it's pretty weird. So in grad school, I mean, it's a long story, but in grad school, I um, actually dropped out for a little while. I took a leave of absence and I founded a company and we went to work. Uh, basically, we did security evaluation for a whole bunch of like Fortune 100 companies. And, and we went and you know hired a bunch of hackers. I worked with this guy, Charlie Miller, who's a pretty famous iPhone hacker. And we did the first, you know, vulnerability in the iPhone. And we worked for all these different DRM companies and some other really interesting kind of stuff that I can't talk about. And, um, you know, uh, I, I really loved that. Like, I loved learning about products. I love learning about how real systems worked in the world. And I liked that part almost as much as I like doing research. But the thing that excited me was kind of tying that research work where we could do new things to this real world of like actual stuff that human beings can use. And so that ended up kind of driving the research that I did instead of writing like theory papers, which, you know, honestly, I wouldn't have been the best at anyway. I found that I had this niche where, you know, figuring out how to make real things do new stuff was what got me excited. And so then I went back to uh, eventually took a teaching job uh, a few years later and wound up where I am now, but there with a few different, different interludes along the way. How did that evolve into finding Bitcoin and then the work on zero coin and zero cash? Um, that, that led to us working together, actually. Yeah, so I think it was about 2011, and mm-hmm. a colleague of mine, Steve Weiss, wrote me and said, hey, there's this new thing called Bitcoin. Have you heard of this? And I did some research on it. I said, there's no way this could possibly work. <laughs> and you know, after like spending two weeks kind of looking at the design and the white paper and the code, I kind of grudgingly accepted that, yes, it seemed to work, and I <laughs> couldn't find a problem with it. But the problem I found with it, I mean, not just me, but the problem I saw was it had no privacy, right? This idea that you're going to write every single transaction you make onto a public ledger that's shared by everybody else. And sure, you're not using your name. You're using a wallet address or a pseudonym, uh, but it, that's nonsense. And everybody sure. who studied studied this area of transaction anonymity knows that that does not work. And you know, mm-hmm. now they're multi-billion dollar companies today proving to us that it doesn't work. But back then, you know, you had to kind of make that argument. And so anyway, um, along with my grad students, uh, Christina Garman and Ian Myers, we spent a bunch of time thinking about how do we fix this problem? And I remember, you know, it was actually Ian who had the kind of big insight. And we went and we wrote this paper called Zero Coin, which in retrospect is kind of a stupid name, but uh, basically it was the first, Yeah. yeah, it was the first academic, you know, private currency. And then later, we, we met up with some other really smart people who were um, you know, working at MIT at that time. And we basically put together this project to do this thing called Zero Cash, 
which became Zcash and ultimately I, I think is kind of the basis of a lot of these modern privacy systems like Aztec and Tornado Cash and, you know, mm-hmm. I think even Penumbra, a lot of different things yep. that, that, you know, it's really exciting to get to de- just build that and deploy it. Was this the first time that you had zero knowledge proofs and blockchain in a single kind of paper? Yeah, I think so. I mean, this is way back. This is like 2013, which, you know, I guess doesn't seem like that long ago, but like in blockchain land was yeah. really, really long ago. I mean, <laughs> Ethereum, sure. Ethereum, Ethereum wasn't even a thing back then. So mm-hmm. it was, uh, it was uh, really, people did not believe it could work. And that zero knowledge proof technology, these things called ZK snarks were just kind of coming along. And, you know, the paper that was the paper that we kind of based some of the zero knowledge technology on was called nearly practical zero knowledge argument. So like, just to give <laughs> you a sense, like yeah, even yeah. the cryptographers didn't believe it. And it was practical. And I think that was this huge watershed where like, wait a second, for the first time, this crazy advanced cryptography, this moon math is actually being used by like real people out in the world. And that, you know, it doesn't happen Amazing. every day in crypto. So it was really fun to do that. That's so cool. So like, had you been super aware of the zero knowledge proof work? Or was it actually for this project that it was kind of like brought to your attention? Oh, no. I mean, I, I have been aware of this. I've worked on privacy-preserving protocols all the way through since grad school. I worked on mm. really boring stuff, like how do you download files without people knowing what file, files you download? So you have to develop oh. zero-knowledge proofs for that. I've like been in love with eCash, although I didn't really have any like great new ideas on eCash because it seemed like before Bitcoin, eCash was kind of a dead area because it was very centralized and mm-hmm. you had to get a bank to do it. So, um, you know, like zero-knowledge proofs were a huge, huge thing for me. There was this new technology that was much smaller and faster called ZK Snarks. And, you know, the idea that we could just plop these things together and like, for me, and and I'm just, just to be a boring, you know, the scientist thing, the area that I work in was not necessarily making better zero knowledge proofs. Like for me, the area that I work on is building protocols that use zero knowledge. And like the analogy Mm -hmm. here is imagine you're a car manufacturer, right? And there's a company that builds awesome fuel injection systems or great, you know, power windows, Right? I don't want to like dismiss zero knowledge as just being that. But for me, the exciting part is building the car sure. and like the underlying technologies and figuring out how to put them all together. To me, that's very exciting. And there are other people who are brilliant at you know kicking forward the exact design of new zero knowledge proof systems. That's not the area that I usually specialize in. That's interesting you say that because like I, I mean, having now been interviewing people on this topic for many, many years. For me, like I'm so excited that we're getting into that space of use cases because that's where. I can be like, I can start to brainstorm. I can be a bit more creative before that. It's been just understanding what uh, like researchers who are super, super deep in it are doing. Have you, do you also feel like it's just taken a while before we can even have those ideas and have those brainstorm? Like, or do you think the ideas have already been created just theoretically? No, I think we're just on the verge of like a huge kind of revolution in the number of ideas. I mean, the, the analogy oh. that I would give is like, Right now, the most boring thing in computer science is like microprocessors, right? Like you don't think about the chip that's inside your computer. You don't think about the ARM chip or the Intel chip or whatever it is because like there's a whole industry that just sits around all day and makes better and faster chips. Every year, Mm -hmm. every 18 months, your chip's going to get faster and you're going to buy a new MacBook if you can afford it or every few years or whatever. You don't think about that. But now what people are excited about is like writing software that does stuff and building social networks and doing all that stuff on top of those chips. And that's Mm -hmm. good. Like it's healthy. The minute like zero knowledge becomes boring, that's when we can start to do stuff that's exciting. Nice. So I want to go back to where we were in this, in your story, zero coins, zero cash. What did you do with that? What happened after that point? 
So we wrote an academic paper. Uh, it was with a group of cartographers, great folks. Um, Ellie Ben Sassan is is the um, you know founder of Starkware, so he's gone on to do a bunch of stuff. Aaron Tromer, um, you know, uh, other folks. <laughs> I'm going to start naming everyone here. Um, we wrote this paper, and it was an academic paper, but we made a decision that we wanted to see it deployed. We wanted to see people actually use this technology and not just have it be like an academic project that gets dropped. So mm-hmm. a lot of different things happen. I spent like a few minutes trying to convince people that we should put it into Dogecoin. <laughs> and like, I, it was actually like my dream that we would like convince what? the Dogecoin. Now we had this idea like that. I thought it would be awesome. Amazing. You could have made the Doge- real Dogecoin dark, not that Verge I, nonsense. Yes. No, <laughs> there was like this very clear moment when like I would have done this, but uh, nobody, nobody bought that idea. So ultimately we, um, we wanted to do it, but you know, we're academics, we're professors, we're busy, and we didn't really have anyone who could do the hard work of like, let's build a company, let's convince people this is not a crazy idea. And I had previously known this guy named Zuko uh, Wilcox O'Hearn, and we'd been, you know, friends or, like, you know, at least we'd known each other a little bit. Um, and we started talking and he was interested. He's very excited about Bitcoin, but he thought Bitcoin had some problems. And I tried to convince him, like, this is the direction you want to go. Make it private. Mm. And he came back to me and he said, I thought about it. There's no way I'm doing that. private bitcoin no that's a terrible idea and so i thought that was over and then he came back a couple days later he said i've been thinking about this and you know the issue for me is not privacy it's fungibility like i don't like this idea that i'm going to have some bitcoin that i'm allowed to spend because it's good bitcoin and have other bitcoin that's like bad bitcoin you know and we know (laughs) this already is a thing that exists in the world right because it's not fungible you can trace all these currencies and so once a criminal has touched it or if it's mined cleanly you know it all is different he said i want to have a currency where that's not possible and i think that Mm. this zero cash thing is the way to do it and so you know many years of effort there was a company founded. There's ultimately a foundation that Josh ran for a while, and you know the currency was launched. I don't remember the year, but um, it it you know was an actual thing and went out to the world. It was a crazy time. 2016, 2017, 2016. I think 2016 too. Yeah, that okay. makes sense. Yeah, but there was a lot of yeah. time before that. Oh yeah. And it was the first. Well, actually, I don't know if it was the actual first zero knowledge protocol. It was definitely the first to make waves that people know about. It, it's sort of a tie because there's, a, you know, the thing that ultimately became Monero, uh, which is called Bitcoin, was out there mm. also. And it like kind of uses zero knowledge, different kind of zero knowledge. So like, you know, it, but it was the first one that used like the really advanced ZK tech. And I think it was, uh, yeah, kind of broke ground because of that. And it's been a catalyst for all these other protocols and ideas that now use the sort of ZK snarks successors of snarks in the case of Starks or other um, proving systems. But I, I find it, you know, for something that I'm very, you know, very much interested in is sort of seeing that evolution into, you know, I think Zcash proved that you could do it with a sort of simple peer to peer payment protocol mm-hmm. that mirrored Bitcoin. But now you see folks like Aztec, Aleo and Penumbra and you know all these all these other protocols coming out where it's actually tied to different kinds of economic activity and what I'm what I'm curious about Matt is you know from your perspective like what what seems to be the most fruitful path for these new protocols working with these new proving systems so you know there's kind of uh, the, the, the starting point for all these blockchains was payments right Bitcoin is about payments how do we do payments but once you have payments you know the next thing you start asking about is how do I make this programmable. 
and then you get mm-hmm. Ethereum and you get smart contracts. And initially, the idea of smart contracts is still kind of payments, right? It's payments, but maybe payments with new tokens and new rules and you know new escrow types and DeFi. And then eventually, you start to think, hey, there's all kinds of other stuff I can do with these chains that you know is even more powerful. Maybe I can you know make sure that people are correctly auditing their data, or I can do federated machine learning where I have people putting lots of data in. And we're not quite there even before we get to zero knowledge because that tech isn't quite ready. But it's getting there. And like this idea that we can have these trustworthy peer-to-peer networks of people, you know, who can do computation for us, take it out of our hands so that if I'm a company or a person, I don't have to like do it all on my own premises or have Amazon do it. Like there are these outsourced people who can do it. That's what that's what smart contracts are about. So I see that as kind of being the next generation of this is how do I do really interesting outsourced computation with people that I don't have to necessarily trust. And when you have multiple people who are sharing data together and want to pool their data. And I think that's where we're going to see the big applications. And I think it's going to be machine learning again, which is kind of a big mm. deal. Um, it's going to be, the it's ZK going to be, ML. yeah, ZKML is coming and it, you know, as weird yeah. as it sounds, right? Like it's, you know, putting these technologies together, but it's coming, it's going to happen. And there's going to be a lot of, I think, usage of this, but still the financial applications are very important, right? Um, yeah. You mm-hmm. know, payments and not just privacy, right? But like, and I should just full disclosure, I'm involved in a company that's trying to do regulatory compliance uh, mm-hmm. using ZK. So what we're doing is it's still just payments, but on top of that, you you fold in this idea that like I can prove that I'm, you know, obeying some regulatory policy, but I don't have to just go out and like give you know the government all of my data. I can just prove this without them sort of seeing all my transactions. So I think that there are other cool things we can do as well. Totally. I, I actually want to just bring up a recent tweet. I think it was like two days ago that you sent out like. Something about ZK Research being fantastic, but what you're looking for are more like doing exciting things with ZK. This kind of goes back to what we were saying before, where like maybe focusing less on just like the cool new update to a snark, like under the hood, but rather like now that you have these things, they're getting more efficient. They're actually becoming usable. What could you do with them? Did you get anything back from that? Did you get people actually giving you any ideas you didn't know before? Not really. I got a lot of people saying, well, what are your ideas? What are your ideas? And I was like, well, we have to ask wait, wait, you. Yeah, Maybe some like, when tokens, you know? <laughs> I mean, so the, I mean, the main use cases that I feel like are super, and we talk about it all the time on the show, but it's like ZK for privacy, ZK for scaling. You're talking ZK for compliance. The very new one is ZK ML, which is ZK, it's computation in a zero knowledge environment. I had someone on the show recently who talked about FHE, who said that maybe it would be better in an FHE environment. Maybe there's a battle to be had there about that. But yeah, what do you think? Well, well, first of all, I think one of the things that, you know, tech people and cryptographers get too specific about these technologies, like, oh, there's ZK, and then there's multi-party computation, Mm -hmm. and then there's FHE. And like, these are three different things. Like, forget all that. Like, one of the things I actually like about the blockchain world, and particularly the kind of like, VC side of the blockchain world is when they say zero knowledge, they don't really care whether they're talking about FHE or ZK. Like they're not hung up on these technical distinctions. What they mean is, look, there's data mm-hmm. and we want to compute on that data in a way that's scalable and private. And that's it. Like, I don't care if you have to use FHE to do part of it. Like that's mm-hmm. just a tool like for them. And I mean them in a very broad sense. I mean, ZK means this idea of computation without revealing your data and without having to give out all the computation. And so that's huge. So great. I I do think that we need other technology. Like FHE is a very powerful tech and like we should be integrating that with ZK 
blockchains and, and a multi-party computation lets a whole bunch of people compute on data without any individual knowing, you know, the other people's inputs. So we need that too. These things all have to be plugged together. So that's kind of the like the, the tech stack that is not yet in existence that has to be built. Once that tech stack comes into existence and it's going to happen over the next five years, what are we going to do with it? And there are a lot of things that we can't even think about, right? Like there are a lot of processes in your life where like you get audited by the IRS and you have no idea how they picked you. And we learned recently that like sometimes the way they pick you may be a little suspicious. Mm. So, you know, now we can prove that 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 auditing was done correctly. We can prove that all kinds of randomized processes were done honestly and and processes, you know, like lottery winner choice and so on. We can do all those things in honest ways. And it doesn't have to be just weird financial stuff. It can be all kinds of different things that we do in our lives that can be done now honestly and verifiably. You know, each of these things, when I list them, it's like, oh, that's a little thing, but they add up. And when you start piling these technologies on top of each other, it ends up being just a whole different way of kind of thinking about the way we interact with, you know, computers and, and technology. I want to throw one more use case out there, which is like ZK ID, but it also ZK ID. So it's like ha- somehow having a private identity yeah. online using reputation. reputation, but also keeping a lot of it private. But one of the things that always comes up when you talk about ZK ID is this fact, the fact that you still are engaging with like real world data, mm-hmm. like, especially if you wanted it to be like a government issued ZK ID, someone still is probably going to like give you the license that's used in the first place or the mm-hmm. you know driver's license or certificate or whatever it is that connection point between the real world and the cryptography world are you paying attention to that like are there any new tools maybe even that you're like starting to learn about in that in that space yeah, no, it's a really good question. So, I mean, first of all, this idea of ZKID is not a Web3 thing, right? It's already happening in Web2. We, Google is deploying this thing called the Privacy Sandbox mm. um, and this Privacy Pass. So the idea that Google has is they're being told by government you can't put cookies on people's browsers anymore if you want to advertise them. You have to stop doing that. And so they're trying to use zero knowledge, like very simple zero knowledge, things called anonymous credentials, to, to make it so that they can like you know categorize who you are but without knowing who you are. But if you think about Google, right, like their, their identity is already assigned to you, right? The reason that Google sells you for free Gmail is not because like they're doing you a favor and it's not – they do make some money on business customers. They're doing it because all those emails that I've gotten over the last you know 12 or whatever years – are proof that I'm a real person and not some click fraud person. Mm. And that to them is the value. So they want to tie that valuable identity that I've built up, that reputation I've built up. They want to tie it to this identifier they can use for advertising, but they've been told at the same time they can't do any of that. Mm-hmm. So this is, you know, billions and billions and billions of dollars of, of advertising revenue at stake for them. So they're building out these ZKID systems. So to answer your question, what's the interface there between real world IDs and zero knowledge? Well, the interface isn't always as simple as like my driver's license and DMV issuer. Mm-hmm. I mean, IDs can be these things that you aggregate over time, right? I didn't, when I started my Gmail account, I was just a person who started a Gmail account. But 10 years later, I'm a person who started a Gmail account and has sent, you know, 10 million messages or whatever it is. And so that makes me a different person. And has proven that you're a person in a way, not a bot. 
yeah, I have this reputation and my reputation might be tied to my Netflix account and the other 50 accounts mm-hmm. that are all tied to that. And these things are what makes me, I mean, as weird as it is, they, that's what makes my ID. So a lot of these things are not as simple as just like, do we trust the government to give you an ID? Although, you know, most of the time I do trust the government to give me a driver's license. It's this kind of complicated aggregation of, uh, of reputation and credentials that all have to be mushed together and reasoned over in interesting ways. And like, that's where the hard technology problems come in is mm. mushing and reasoning, not just in like take simple ID and turn into ZK credential and go. It's a bit of a crazy loaded question maybe, but when thinking about that kind of technology development for companies and ecosystems that basically survive on massive surveillance of mm-hmm. individuals online and and thinking like, oh, there, there can be – we can figure out some way to anonymize the individual while – preserving that business model of like some degree of sort of massive batched surveillance. Do you, do you think, I mean, do you think that's both possible and compatible with like a free society? Sorry, sorry to just dump the massive. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, now you're asking not like a really hard question. I have a lot of skepticism. I could go off on a long tangent about how I have a lot of skepticism about the way that big corporations are using privacy-preserving technologies, not so much as a way to actually make their customers more private, but as a way to like loosen up and get around legal requirements wow. so they can get at their data. So I'm a little afraid of that, that we're going to end up with these you know, credible models uh, that basically allow corporations to predict everything about what you do. And the way we're going to do it is by using quote-unquote privacy-preserving technologies to get there. So that scares me. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't mean that there is not a path that uses these privacy preserving technologies like ZK to get to a good place. Mm. It just means we have to not be stupid. We have to make sure that like when we say we want privacy, we have our eyes on the prize of like, actually the goal should really be privacy. It should not just be like letting companies get around regulation. And that's Mm. where human beings fall down a lot of the time. But the technology isn't at fault. It's our use of it that's at fault. It's so funny because I always thought of like ZK privacy tech kind of positioned on the opposite side of like the big data stuff. Like it was the antithesis to it or the reaction to it. Right. And it's, it's interesting to hear that it's, it's actually, yeah, under the hood, those things are already melding and, and it could lead to some better privacy in a way, or maybe some protections, but it could also lead to some, yeah, I don't know, getting around regulations that are, you know, barely holding it, <laughs> holding our privacy at bay. Yeah, and I think we need to understand that better. And I wish that more researchers were thinking, more researchers and people who are not computer science researchers knew about this and were thinking about it. It's like Mm. this big thing that's about to happen to us, and we're just watching it happen and not realizing. I do want to also bring up the term ZK. Like you just said, that VCs see it all in the same bucket. The amount of projects that have a sprinkle of ZK in them at this point is crazy. You just see it like, project that had nothing to do with it three months ago, have now hired a, ZK, a person to at least do research into that direction. I think at, at the recent DevCon at, in Bogota, there was like, I, I, I'm kind of, this is very anecdotal, but like, I think like half the talks had some ZK mention. And not to say that all, all of them were ZK talks or ZK projects, but do you, do you think that it might, like, so one of the fears I have is it becomes like, blockchain in 2017 like like failing startups which just like sprinkle some blockchain to like get some attention (laughs) i hope that's not happening enterprise grade blockchain (laughs) ck 
I mean, it probably is going to happen, but like all it takes is one, all it takes is one company to come through it and be really successful for it all to be fine. But yeah, there's definitely going to be, there's definitely going to be like a ZK backlash and it's going to happen soon. And then it's going to, we're going to get through that and then we'll see what actually happens. Cool. Um, I want to talk about your new project and then I do want to talk a little bit about the tornado cash stuff, but before I actually do either of those, like I think where we stopped in your story was Zcash was founded. You were part of the org, right? You were part of the foundation. I was, I was part of the, uh, electric coin company, the zero cash, zero coin electric coin company was the original name of it. And part of it means that I was like, you know, on the slack and doing some stuff and helping out. And, uh, okay. then ultimately, ultimately Zuko said, Hey, would you join this new foundation that I'm starting? And I said, sure, that sounds great. And then, uh, that was that. Okay. And you were there until just recently. I was, I just left the foundation board. I've been there for many years mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, it needs some new blood, I think. And, and also like, I'm just slammed. So I think it's really good that more people are going to be able to be there. How has the Zcash community been like the trajectory of it? Like it was the first, but now there are a lot, a lot of ZK projects. So yeah, I'm just curious, like how that developed. So, you know, one of the, I think the, the things I would praise the Zcash community for, and also what people criticize it for, is it's a very polite, science-focused community, right? Like, we care a lot about doing ZK right, doing mm-hmm. security right, doing this right, and not, you know, shilling and worrying too much about the price. And mm-hmm. that I've always loved. I think that's a great thing about the community, but obviously a lot of people would see all of those things as criticisms. They think that the whole point of a community is to, you know, pump the price, pump mm-hmm. the price. Who cares about this technology? So that's always been kind of a split and there's just that's just the personality of the community the upshot of all that is that things have come out of the zcash community that have had huge i think disproportionate influence on everything else right so tornado cash is not exactly zcash but you know it's basically a a fork of like the zcash over uh, ethereum idea that some of the zcash folks like did at a hackathon not a fork it's just kind of a re-implementation and Mm -hmm. like tornado tornado nova is basically zcash sapling and you know now there's a whole bunch of new proof techniques based on halo and i've been talking to some zk startups and they're like yeah we're using halo or halo plus that also came out of like ecc and zcash so i think that there's been a huge influence on the world even if you know the value of Zcash hasn't, you know, pumped every possible dollar out of the world. And obviously people <laughs> are very unhappy about that. Mm, I understand yeah. that too. I remember even early on, you know, the electric coin company offered up, you know, time and resources to the Ethereum Foundation just to bootstrap their understanding of, of zero knowledge systems really early on that I think also, I mean, that they really don't get enough I think credit and praise for doing that uh, and being that open with uh, the research they were working on. There, there's a snark verifier. There's a there's a precompile in Ethereum that verifies uh, zero knowledge proofs, and that basically was just like, hey, we want to be able to validate Zcash transactions, and that's yeah. why Tornado Cash worked. That's why you know all of these different systems work because that was sort of lifted directly from Zcash. Mm. And I guess yeah. like getting Vitalik interested. I don't. I mean, I don't know if it was Zcash itself, but definitely the scientists around Zcash got Vitalik interested quite early, and then he prepared that series of intro to ZK snarks, which was incredibly influential. Like I know this in my community because it's constantly cited. It's like one of the first things cited when people join. They're always, they always want to see those blog posts first. And that, you know, obviously was incredibly influential in Ethereum. So like the community would have known about it from that point forward. Yep. He, he was really enthusiastic. I mean, Vitalik is, he is an advisor to, uh, I think ECC, 
And he's been involved in this community from the start, and mm-hmm. he's excited about it. And I think that you know that influence made a big deal. Also, the the you know the the connection with Ellie uh, being part of Zcash, and then also being part of Starkware, and Starkware being you know tightly tied to to Ethereum and like all the Stark stuff, you know, spawning other businesses. Like there is a direct lineage there. Like I don't mm-hmm. know that we can say, hey, we take credit for it all, but um, there's a lineage. It's not just random stuff that happened. So let's talk about Sealance. Am I saying that right? Sealants. Sealants. Yeah, okay. No, uh, <laughs> um, so I guess uh, I'm just curious. We we kind of teased it. It's using zero knowledge proofs, but it's compliance related. Tell us a little bit about what it is. What's the purpose of this project? Yeah. So for years, I mean, I started back in like 2016. You know, one of the things I was I, I've been super excited about privacy, and I'm kind of in the like cypherpunk side of privacy. Like my view is privacy should just be like privacy, mm-hmm. and we should not, you know, worry about governments. We should just do what we want and whatever. And I'm very unhappy with the way that you know, computers are really taking away privacy and payments and all sorts of other areas. So I'm very much a cypherpunk person. But I also recognized, and I think we recognized this way back when, in like 2013, that there is a threat that you know we may end up with a world where we get either maximal privacy or we get like no privacy at all like Mm -hmm. every payment you make is recorded by the government and you know if we force people to choose particularly if we force governments to choose between those two worlds we may end up in the worst possible world Mm -hmm. and so one of the things we thought about was is there a compromise is there a way that we can have compliance based systems where we get the privacy that you would get from cash transactions like small value transactions are totally private but also if somebody money launders you know 200 million dollars like north korea recently did uh, got tornado cash in trouble like there is something we can do about that we can enforce some sort of compliance or i'm not saying like hunt them down necessarily although maybe for north korea that would be good but mm-hmm. i'm saying like there we could prevent those kind of events from taking place and so we spent some time thinking about that did some research ultimately that research we decided and, and we is, by the way, my partners, uh, Iran Tromer and Shlomit Azgad Tromer, we founded this company and we said, let's take this commercial, let's build these systems and actually launch them. And so nice. that that became sealants. And, you know, like I've always been a little nervous. I'm afraid that somebody is going to accuse me of being a shill for like big regulation. And, you know, maybe, maybe to some extent they're right. Um, but I do believe that these systems are going to exist and you know somebody should do them in a way that's compatible with privacy rather than having chainalysis or somebody else no offense to chainalysis build them all and make them in make them look like something much much worse and so that's mm. that's been the project i've been involved in for 2 3 years now and it sounds also like time spent in the industry and sort of learnings that have led you to want to build this particular product, it speaks to what we want to talk about next, which is the tornado cash sanctions in a way. Like the industry, the ZK industry, I've, you know, I definitely, I see a lot of different teams that kind of, they, they run the gamut from being very, very compliance oriented to extremely anti-government, don't want anything to do with anything compliance. Um, and tornado, I believe lived a little bit closer to that second poll. Um, (laughs) Do you still think that there is a place for those projects that are not compliance, given that you've made sort of a decision of where you want to sit and work on it? Do those projects still have a place, the ones that go really far out? Or will they just kind of create basically animosity from the governments that'll come down with with a strong fist on them and potentially kind of wreck our industry? Yeah. Okay. That's, that's like three different really good questions. Yeah, no, but it, you're asking like the right question. So, so first of all, 
hey, we're not in mainstream adoption phase right mm-hmm. now, right? Like there are, there are only a few hundred thousand people, you know, actively using Ethereum right now. So this is like early, early days, right? When we get to, you know, 100 million people actively using Ethereum every day and we get to a billion people actively using Ethereum, that's the mainstream adoption case. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that Tornado Cash exists in, you know, this relatively small space right now does not mean that, you know, it's going to be the same when we're into the world where, you know, Ethereum is like Facebook and we have that many people using it. So Mm. you can have systems like Tornado Cash exist. And at the same time, you can say, well, look, the mainstream systems, the ones that, you know, everybody and their brother is using, those systems might not have as many Tornado Caches. So like they, these can be just two different worlds, Mm. the mainstream and the niche things where Tornado Cache will continue to exist. And I like that. And I hope that is the case. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second question you asked, the other question is, you know, like, is Tornado Cache going to bring down the big hammer of government? Well, not even Tornado Cache, but like things like Tornado Cache or things that maybe even push that, that ethos further away yeah. from the mainstream. I'm very, very curious to hear this response for my own yeah. professional reasons. I mean, I, I could like go on a lot and say a lot of things here, but like the answer is, yeah, you know, like this is this thing that we're doing and it's not just tornado cash. It's not just privacy. This thing that we're doing where we are building, you know, financial systems or payment systems that are not centralized and tightly controlled by government regulators is a really inevitable thing. It's a thing that has been held back. And I, I, the thing I really wish I could convince people of, I say this thing, and it's so obvious to everybody, and it sounds stupid when I say it, but it's true, which is that like computers are really good at doing certain things. They're really good at, you know, drawing graphics. They're really good at making music. And like, they're really good at browsing the web. These are natural things for computers to do. And one of the things that computers are really good at doing is sending, you know, exchanging value back and forth, making payments. They're just naturally built for this task. Mm. And yet, when you look at the last, you know, uh, 22 years or so, there has just been this emptiness when it, you look for companies that make it actually easy to send real payments, like cash-type payments. There's been nothing. Before Bitcoin, there were a few centralized companies. They got their doors kicked in by government regulators and by the FBI because there were a lot of regular people who did not want that kind of business to exist. And so we had, like, what, PayPal? And we had maybe Venmo. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, this is not yes. a natural world. Yeah, but, like, it's not just, ugh, like – there are a million different companies who've tried to do social media. There are a million different companies who've made games. There are like two companies who have been successful, maybe three, mm-hmm. at doing like peer-to-peer payments. Like that's not normal. That's an artificial situation. Mm. And the problem is that it, that artificial situation is not tenable. You can't keep that situation going for much longer. And when you try to stop those companies that you know people from using computers to do things they're very good at, you end up with decentralized systems that work around the you know those regulations, and you end up with bitcoin and you end up with you know ethereum and whatever and so anyway i'm going to stop talking a lot but what i'm trying to say is like these systems are hard to control and stop and they will proliferate and it's like trying to stop i don't want to use a bad analogy here it's like trying to stop people from like buying drugs right Mm. like you can put a lot of restrictions that make it hard make it expensive but you're never going to get it to zero and so those systems can't go away Mm. um at the same time you know we don't like drug dealers uh, in our neighborhoods and governments don't like drug dealers. There are a lot of people in jail and I would say arguably our country is a lot worse off because of things like the drug war. And what do you do about it? Like I can't stop the tornado caches of the world from existing. I'm not sure I would want to, mm-hmm. and they are going to exist and the government is going to overreact and everybody's going to suffer in a whole bunch of different ways. And I'm not sure whose fault it is, but it's just the situation we're going to wind up in. Mm. And what you said there though, that it's this inevitability, like 
the things we've built, the internet, the computers that we use, and now maybe like decentralized ledgers, there is sort of like a way that they're developing whether we kind of try to slow it down or control it or stomp some out. It, like it will still happen. But I guess, do you, do you think we philosophically need to like be at a different place as a society or something? Is that what we're waiting for? Or do we have to wait for the nation states to just sort of crumble enough that it like doesn't matter anymore? <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, I think by the time they crumble that much, like we're going to be all in a much worse place. So I'm not sure I want to look forward to that world. Mm. But um, <laughs> I, I, I do think that, you know, like it isn't natural, like, right. There, there's always been a world where it was easier to send money around. And we did that, right? Like there was always, you know, not that long ago and we could just send cash to people and nobody cared about it or we could like, you know, not every transaction you made was tightly monitored and the financial regulation wasn't quite as strict. And so it's possible to live in a world with privacy and some financial privacy and the world didn't end then and it won't end now. Um, and it's not like all this, these regulations are stopping, you know, all the drug money laundering in the world from happening all the time. So I think that we could be in a much more private world. On the other hand, do I think we're going to live in a world where like there is no government regulation trying to control the flow of funds? No, I don't mm. think that world's going to happen in my lifetime. Let's fully move on to the tornado cash topic. Um, I know we've just been kind of like heading there. So it happened in August. I'm really curious to hear from you, like, You've been in this space for a long time in that very much in like the the privacy focused part of the industry. What did it mean for you when you saw this? Did you were you kind of like, oh yeah, we knew that was coming? Or were you actually surprised with how it went down? You could know that something's coming and also be surprised when it goes down. <laughs> okay. Right? It's it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, it actually surprised me it took so long for this to happen. Mm -hmm. And it surprised me that we got away with being so lax around pr adding privacy to protocols for so many years, right? Our whole thesis in starting Zcash was this is the way, or at least doing the research was actually when we started zero cash, like, you know, we thought that this Bitcoin would, we naively thought Bitcoin would add it to their protocol. Like that was mm -hmm. back in the days when people thought Bitcoin would update their protocol more often. And, um, you know, it was only later that this whole idea of altcoins was a thing. So anyway, you know, the idea that all of these new systems like Ethereum and other things popped up with no built-in privacy was really shocking to me. And yet, like the world didn't end, right? We, we, we said governments are going to take advantage of this and they're going to filter and censor transactions. And the fact that that didn't happen for a whole, you know, eight years from the launch of Ethereum was pretty impressive. Mm. Unfortunately, if you look right now at Ethereum's um, proof of stake block production, uh, it is now, I think yesterday, up to somewhere between 62 and 64% of all oh, blocks geez. produced are sanctions compliant, meaning that they are filtering specifically for uh, sanctions you know, type transactions. And that's a... Um, that's a real, like, again, I'm not saying that tornado cash transactions are good or bad. I'm not trying mm -hmm. to apply a value judgment here, but you can't have a censorship resistant protocol in that environment. And when you've gotten there, like something terrible has happened and it's not good for you. I mean, in a lot of ways, that just demonstrated the impact that a government can still have, whether it be for privacy technology or not, right? It could be just for anything. If there's a way that they, if there's addresses that they don't want to be included. Now we can see that there is a way to get companies that have sort of a like quite a bit of power to comply. Yeah. And I think in, in the proof of stake case, uh, we've done now two episodes where we talked about this, but it's like the MEV, the, this, it's like at a different place in the stack even where that compliance can actually happen. I think we always thought it would be like validators, miners, 
right? But now it's like, oh, no, wait, there's like all these other actors kind of emerging who can also do it. And so much of that is that oh, those pieces are public and transparent to the world, right? It, it like makes – this whole thing kind of makes me think like, you know, was in the, in the eight years, that eight-year interregnum where we were sort of left alone was, was actually creating this complacency around the yep. privacy piece, right? Where we yep. all – like it was almost – you know, it almost works. I mean, I don't know. I'm not going to put my tinfoil hat on here, but it's it seems like, you know, it kind of works to the government's favor that all of a sudden there are, you know, maybe not millions or tens of millions or 100 million, but hundreds of thousands of very active people that are now reliant on a system that doesn't have privacy baked in. When, when your adversary is screwing up, you know, don't step in and remind them that they're right. making a mistake. And I think that's what the government, you know, whether they were doing it consciously or it was just laziness, like that's that's what yeah. they were doing. And um, yeah, it's it's a very effective thing. We'll let people get locked into a system that is, you know, at a deep fundamental level broken. And the, the scary thing about it, right, is Ethereum's strategy for adding privacy is something like tornado cash, right? They said, we'll have privacy. It's going to be inside of some smart contract. Mm-hmm. But you know what, what OFAC sanctions exposed is that they can get you right there mm-hmm. and they can filter mm-hmm. those transactions. And uh, if you don't bake it into the protocol and actually actively think about censorship resistance, then you're toast. I think I asked this on the last um, episode I did with Martin, where we also talked about tornado. Do you think in a weird way that it was kind of like, good for the ZK community to have this happen when it did. And obviously I just yes. want to say something here, like anyone who worked on the tornado cash project, I'm obviously it's not good in a good sense, but I just mean like for the, this, the health of the ZK industry, is it good that it happened? Yes. I think it's really helpful. I think people, you know, you can only say, Hey, the bad thing is going to happen to you so many times and not have the bad thing happen. And, uh, you know, people, people stop taking you seriously. Mm. And so just seeing the bad thing happen exactly as predicted is really, really important. Uh, but this doesn't mean that people are going to pay attention, right? There are going to be people who maybe rightly say, well, you know, tornado did have a lot of crime and whatever on it. Maybe we don't care about that use case. Maybe it's just one, as long as OFAC and treasury are just, you know, doing these very isolated kinds of bans, it's okay. I think the danger there is that the same complaint um, you know, you can wish for things to be all right, but once people have figured out how to exploit the system, they're going to keep exploiting it more and more. And mm. I think um, exploit, by the way, I, I work with people who talk to a lot of regulators, and I'm sure that this is going to make a lot of people mad. I just want to use the word exploit like a security researcher, like trying to make a system work the way you want, doesn't imply a value judgment about what's happening, but it's definitely an exploit exploit of the system. Mm kind of going back to where, at least on this particular case, this moment, that 62% you mentioned, a lot of that, the fact that they can make like a multi-billion dollar network OFAC compliant, even though it's decentralized, you know, a lot of it comes down to MEV and the tools that are used to extract MEV. Have you paid attention to that space, the MEV space and the cryptography that they're, because there is, there are some like cryptographic solutions that have been proposed there. Yeah, just just a little bit. I'm aware of some. I know Penumbra is doing some of the stuff, and there are other yep. people who are working on it too. Uh, yeah, it's it's a hard, ugly problem, but like it does come down to a combination of probably some cryptography and some encryption, maybe zero knowledge, and um, and also just like honesty, right? If everybody in the system wants to censor, 
then no crypto in the world is going to save you. Mm -hmm. But uh, as long as there's some percentage of people who aren't, what you can do is you can leverage cryptography to make it very expensive and very kind of difficult for people to censor. And I think that's the direction that we need to go. Mm. I know one proposal is also this idea of just like, you can kind of like the MEV as it lives today with yep. the agents that exist today, you can kind of use cryptography to break that up. But I know there is a counter argument to that that says you can break it up, but you'll, they'll find MEV somewhere else. Like there, there can still be these centralizing points just like further away from validators or something. I don't believe it. Like, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm on the fence, right? Yeah. I mean, as an engineer, like when you see a problem like this, the instinct that I have is we have to be able to find a solution. Okay. We have to be able to not necessarily stop it, but make it so expensive to do MEV. And by the way, I, I see MEV and censorship resistance as two two sides of the same coin, mm. right? One is one is removing transactions, and one is changing the order of transactions. And they're both based on looking at the transactions and having thoughts about whether you want them. So they're just the same thing. Mm. Yeah. And so if we solve the hard one, we solve the other one. Obviously, there are some slight subtleties in those solutions. But um, you know, to me. Right, like this problem is we're really good at doing things using technology where we make things exponentially more expensive for people to run attacks. And I can't swear, but my instinct, my intuition tells me there's something we can do where we do it like with five times as much resources that makes it, you know, two to the five times as hard or maybe some smaller exponential to, to run these attacks or more costly. So we'll never stop it, but I think we can make it much more expensive. And I think we can do it in a way where the, the differential between the resources we have to throw at the problem and the expense of somebody overcoming it ends up being pretty asymmetric and pretty mm -hmm. different. But I'm just spitballing. So, yeah. Do you think that that asymmetry will be enough with state level actors, though? Because that's like I, what I wonder about if it's if you have this world where Ethereum's like a trillion, multi trillion dollar ecosystem, right? And then the value derived from censorship at that scale yeah. is so much higher. Like maybe, maybe the, you know, various governments would be willing to attack what is fundamentally like an asymmetric cost problem. Yeah. And I think the, the much more likely outcome is what happens is that, you know, maybe if Ethereum tries too hard to be decentralized, to be censorship resistant, you know, then instead of like, think of, think of, uh, Ethereum, like Usenet, right? Like they were mm. a decentralized system, like for, for doing messages. And then Facebook, you know, years later, Facebook is a cent totally centralized system and Facebook, mm. you know, complies with all the regulations. So maybe the outcome is not so much like Ethereum fails or succeeds or gets attacked, but rather that Ethereum gets forked or the version of Ethereum that is the future, the version of whatever that is the future mm -hmm. is not just, just strips out those protections because, you know, the value they, the incentives that the government can offer to, to people who are willing to not transact that way is high, and mm. that could be the answer. So I don't know what the policy mm. future is. I just think at the protocol level, we can individually defend protocols. I do think that idea of at this stage going in and changing Ethereum's model is going to be really challenging. There's a lot of vested interest in the system yeah. that exists today continuing, but there are a number of other networks that are out there and gaining some mind share even. I know like there was all this, this battle over the L1s, like the other L1s are going to like eat, you know, take over Ethereum. And I think that narrative definitely was knocked out for a while. And I don't think it will be like an L1 like Ethereum taking Ethereum. But yeah, right now it seems pretty entrenched in a weird way. Like the, 
MEV. And I know there's a lot of conversation about this. There are other groups that are trying to come on. I actually believe that 62% you just shared might actually be down from what it was before. Good. So I know that there is an effort to sort of reduce it. I still wonder, though, like there's so much vested interest. The MEV ecosystem is booming. Like apparently the other biggest talks at, you know, in Bogota, I wasn't there, but the other most common theme in the talks was MEV. And so like it is, it's exciting to people. People want to be in there. It's like there's brain share. It's really. It pains me so much because it just sort of feels like an abstraction. (laughs) Well, well, you know what it feels like to me, it's like. Um, when ch- Chainalysis first started, and again, no offense to maybe a little bit of offense to any blockchain analytics company. I don't care. Uh, but, but like, you know, when they started, there was ex- excitement around that. And to me, MEV is almost like – and again, I, I haven't spent much time or, or, or space looking into it very deeply. But so much of it seems like the same kind of negative externality that yeah. the blockchain analytics space like kind of – uh, engorged itself into uh, early on in like Bitcoin's Bitcoin's life, and I just mm. sort of see like this is the Ethereum arc of that same kind of behavior. Ooh, there, there are wonderful people that like obviously like I think that the Flashbots team in particular like has very good intentions, and everything that I've heard about the way that they're approaching it is like you know they 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 have they have a deep sense of mission and purpose about why they're doing the things that they're doing, but it, it's still like on a conceptual level, it almost feels like. Like this is, you know, Ethereum's chainalysis arc or something. Oh, and, interesting. Like, hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. I really, really don't know the future. But I do think that, you know, if trusted systems can provide better value without MEV, like trusted centralized type systems, mm-hmm. then decentralized systems where MEV is running rampant, it's going to be a bad thing for the decentralized systems. Mm, and yeah. maybe there's some economic reason why that'll happen. But I'd like to believe that, you know, smart people will see the danger there and will steer away from it. Mm. And just to, just to say, address what you just said about, you know, the entrenched ecosystem. I agree, but like we've had entrenched ecosystems before, right? We had, I don't want to say Bitcoin has gone away, but I think a lot of the energy in the world has shifted away from Bitcoin towards these newer, towards Ethereum, right? Ethereum is the new hot thing, but that doesn't mean that we're done, Mm -hmm. right? There's always room for entrenched systems to become too entrenched and kind of lose relevance. So we'll see. I think we've talked a little bit about some of the impacts of Tornado Cash, but as it happened, your surprise that that week, I'm curious what your take was on the reaction of your peers. And like when it happened, people felt a lot. Twitter was a bit on fire. A lot of people had very quick hot takes. Um, there was some mis- like misunderstanding, misinformation also going around. People made assumptions about certain things that weren't completely clear yet. Yeah. What was your take at that time, like on what people actually how they reacted? Well, I, okay. So the, the good news was that most people were sort of like, this is bad. I like that this is bad. There were different arguments for why this is bad. I didn't feel like there was, you know, outrage, right? Like it, it, this was a very niche issue that like people who are really into ZK and privacy and blockchain cared a lot about. And the rest of the world was kind of like, meh, right? Some North, you know, North Korean money launderer got shut down. And I, so that, that was one thing that I noticed. Um, I'm not sure what it would take to kick this kind of stuff out into the world, but it was a little bit less of a massive issue. Um, the other thing that I would say is, wow, I was surprised. So I, I got involved in one aspect of this, which was the code. I was very, very worried and sad that like 
GitHub took down Tornado Cash's code. And my view has always been really simple. Like you could argue whether Tornado Cash is good or bad. That's a great argument. Go have it. But the Tornado Cash code is just code. It's protected, in my opinion, by the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. And it's valuable. Like my students need it. I need it. Like that code should exist. And I thought, here's the uncontroversial part. So I'll just lop off the uncontroversial part, which is we'll just protect that code. And it got taken down by the sanctions, but we'll make a mirror of it, whatever. And I actually gotten like a certain amount of trouble. Hmm. um, Did you? uh, Yeah, not so much trouble. I just, I heard third hand that some people were unhappy with me about that. And I was a little bit shocked. I think it it was just, um, you know, I was surprised. I thought- Everybody from Treasury on down would basically say, look, you know, we didn't mean to like take down the code, of course, like the sanctions on the on the chain. Maybe we meant that. And and, and I think it just I, I accidentally without meaning to made some people like embarrassed or look bad. And it was um, it was surprising to me. And I guess maybe I need to grow up a little and learn that. But um, so th- that was one of the reactions I, I heard that I was I was sad about. I'm not sure what else to say. Like, I think that, you know, people have a lot of thoughts about Tornado Cash and, and on-chain privacy should be a right and they're going to take a lawsuit and they're going to do mm-hmm. it. I'm, I'm a little pessimistic. You know, I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying that I'm pessimistic that that's going to work out for everybody. Mm. About the code. I mean, so I remember that tweet. I remember you saying that you were going to do that. Later, when the FAQs came out, they did actually kind of say that the code was okay to use in educational things. Do you think your tweets had something to do with that being included? Yeah, I think so. Okay, um, wow. I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Yeah. Maybe I'm overemphasizing it. But like, I think getting it out there was important. And I think that people have to do that. And like, the one thing I could do as a professor who has a Twitter account that, you know, some people follow mm-hmm. is I can like make a big stink about that. And I'm really happy that, you know, I have the, you know, a large enough Twitter microphone to make a stink about things like that, that I think are important, mm-hmm. even yeah, if I can't true. fix all the other problems. Yeah. yeah, I'm 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 grateful for that, and and frankly, like I also think that whoever felt embarrassed about you posting the code f- should have felt embarrassed because it's you know it's a free speech issue, right? And if yeah, it's it's crazy to me that like again, I actually like there's a there's a friend of mine who you know a brilliant like law minded person lawyer type who does think tank style stuff in D.C. and you know, he tried to walk through why he thinks a lot of these, you know, a lot of like the lawsuit is a no go. Why there's like a sufficient amount of leeway in the way that you know OFAC can actually like there's there's apparently an argument to be made that that OFAC can in fact sanction. You know, I, I intuitively feel like it's terrible, but apparently the way the law is written suggests otherwise. But I think even even he would admit that like the code itself mm. is still something that should be permissible to publish and post, you know? Yeah. I think these are the kind of values that like, we should all just sort of say like, nobody should disagree about this. It is definitely protected. The code is protected. It's valuable. And maybe, maybe it was just more a question of like the implementation. Nobody had the intention of taking down the code. The implementation just kind of went crazy. Mm. And, uh, and people are a little embarrassed about that. Nobody is necessarily disagreeing with that, but, um, but yeah, like we have to be more careful. And, you know, a lot of these sanctions laws, uh, the laws that enable the sanctions have specific, you know, uh, riders that basically say, hey, there are these exceptions and they're designed to protect things like bookshops and publication. Mm-hmm. And they exist because we as a country value our First Amendment and yeah. our ability to, you know, for people to speak. And software is no different. And that's a place where I think we need to draw a line. Yep. Did you learn a lot about how 
Treasury works when this happened. I did. I'm not American, but I learned a lot about all of the different administrative units. We also did a show about that where they like Treasury and OFAC and the CFTC. Yep. Yep. And the SEC and like how they all relate or don't. But yeah, did you did you already know all this or was it like did it actually shed some light into how they work for you? I didn't know as much about OFAC as I did I do now, but I wouldn't say I'm an expert. Like one of the things I've been very happy about is not being <laughs> I'm not I'm not <laughs> deeply attracted to being a, a you know an expert on this. There are people who are mm-hmm. great at this. I work with some of them. You know, like Peter Van Valkenburg, who I'm sure you've all met. He's mm-hmm. great. He's at Coin Center. He knows all this stuff by heart, and he can talk to me for hours. Yeah. But um, for me, I like you know I feel like if I know too much about that, it's going to curse me, and I'm going to like forget how to do like you know tech or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's going to make you worried about every single decision you're trying to make because yes. there's all the yeah, <laughs> possibilities. But but, but I, I have had a bunch of meetings with regulators. I'm going to say this. Um, you know, I had a meeting with um, some folks at FinCEN. I've had meetings with folks at Treasury, and they're you know kind of they're at digital, I guess, innovation departments. And all of these people are super nice, super intelligent, well informed about all of these areas. They're not like bad guys. Mm. I just really want to make it clear that like it's not just a bunch of people going around. And you know, even when I talk to some of the folks who are in the national security side, and I've talked to some of them like in like the administration. You know, they have strong feelings about this and they really, 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 probably with good reason, do not like the idea that North Korea has 500 million or 600 million or got, Mm -hmm. maybe didn't get it all. And like for them, this is a matter of like, you know, U.S. cities not blowing up in mushroom clouds. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard for me to tell those people they're wrong. Mm -hmm. So um, they're they're not totally on the wrong side there. Mm. My sense when this happened, on Twitter at least, there's almost this attitude that like, OFAC is coming to take away your fun. Like they want to hurt you. Like that was sort of the, f- the feeling at least that people were reacting with sort of like everything we're doing, they're against us. It took me doing that interview where with a few lawyers who could help me navigate what was happening that like there, there's like a, a mission, a goal. And this is one of the tools they're using to get that goal. But it's not necessarily to shut down the blockchain industry. Yeah. If they wanted to shut down the blockchain industry, right? Like this was this was a scalpel. This was a scalpel and not a axe. Mm-hmm. They could have used an axe, and that would have been stupid. But they used a scalpel, mm. although not perfectly. No, but like you know, <laughs> no no surgery ever goes perfect. Yeah, like it, it could have been a hundred times worse, mm. easily. Yeah. What do you think comes out of this? I mean, we talked a little bit about what we hope, but going forward. What's the takeaway? What do you want to see on the horizon from the ZK community? I mean, you talked use cases. I mean, I think once you start to explore use cases, there's so many kinds of use cases, which will hopefully continue to be like, I guess I hope that it doesn't stop the ability for us to brainstorm all these great use cases, that we get stuck on this one use case that isn't executed correctly yet. Yeah. Okay, so I want to see like zero knowledge get baked in at the lowest level of these systems, okay. right? It has to be there. It has to be part of the system. And that's going to mean payment privacy. And it's going to mean payment privacy is going to have to have, you know, some of these features that, you know, again, not not shilling my own thing, but like regulatory compliance is going to end up being more and more important to people, especially as privacy is out there. So that that's a thing. I want all that to exist. I want that that not just privacy technology, the zero knowledge technology to start to find new applications. Mm -hmm. And I think we're starting to see some of those. I really do believe like 
DeFi is not stupid, right? A lot of people look at DeFi and they're like, oh, this is a clown show. And I, I, I know people, like people, sorry, the people I talk to in the academic community are like, DeFi is just a bunch of people like pumping and, you know, doing all this. It's not. I think DeFi is going to be really, really, really important. And I think there's a really compelling argument to make that DeFi will actually be a lot more efficient than centralized financial systems. Mm -hmm. But I accept that I may be wrong about all that. And without privacy, without zero knowledge, none of that technology is going to ever be able to go into the real world use cases. Because like, you can't have MEV all over the place. You can't have everyone monitoring your transactions. It's ridiculous. And so for that stuff to grow up, these technologies have to become mature. Mm. Um, But once you get outside the obvious stuff, yeah, there is the big question. Like there is this huge green field for how are we going to do more exciting applications? How are we going to make it so that like the Googles of the world can do that identity stuff and like, you know, in a way that's private? How can we make it so that, you know, we can we can handle all this data our phones are generating in a way that lets us do useful things, but is hopefully not abusive and is also private. And all of those things are going to need infrastructure to grow up on. And I think one of the big things we're not seeing is we're not seeing very much of that stuff deployed because every time somebody wants to deploy a technology like that, it requires a Google mm. to talk to a MasterCard or something like that. And though that makes this much harder. Once it becomes a platform that's available like AWS, which could be a few years away, then we're going to see applications we haven't even thought of that are going to do huge things with data. But I can't tell you exactly what they are any more than I could have told you exactly what was going to happen with the internet back, you know, in the early days. Mm. Things things surprised me. Very cool. Matt, Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing with us your background, the work you did and the work you're doing today, and also talking to us about the Tornado Cash OFAC sanction, the impact, what this could mean for our industry. Yeah, we covered a lot. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Matt. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's great. I want to say a big thank you to the podcast team, Tanya, Rachel, and Henrik, and to our listeners. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.